Dear Lord, we praise you that you are stronger than any challenge or difficulty that we face. That as we come to you, Lord, we know that we find everything that we need. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The uh, scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Genesis. Chapter 12, we'll be reading verses 1 through 3. I encourage you to follow along with us in your pew Bible. It can be found on page 11. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Thank you. Uh, You may notice we have a microphone up here for our scripture readers. Uh, Mark Savoy, who's in the back, uh, running the sound and everything, he put this in there, installed this for us, so let's give a big hand to Mark. Thank you very much. Um, I, however, I wander, so I'm pushing this down and I'm speaking with this. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Dear Lord, we thank you once again for this opportunity for us to gather together and to seek you. Lord, many of us uh, we come here from different places. Some of us, Lord, have been walking with you for many years. Lord, some of us walking with you for many years, but perhaps have strayed, have wandered. Lord, others of us are here maybe not even sure what we think about you, who you are. And we're just here to explore. God, we pray that you would meet each and every one of us right where we are. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jack Welch who was the former CEO of General Electric, he and his wife, Susie Welch, wrote an article, which I read a couple of years ago. And in that article, it talks about the characteristics of winning teams. It talks about in the business world, in the sports world, in the whatever world, what what are the successful teams? What are the characteristics of successful leaders? What are the characteristics of successful teams? And what are the things that they highlight is that successful teams always have a game plan. There's always a plan, whether you are uh, trying to raise test scores in a school, uh, whether you are trying to expand your product in, uh, in, in, in a shopping mall environment, you're trying to figure out how to do that, or whether you're, uh, w- whatever it is, whether you're, a, whether you're a sports team, whether you're trying to win uh, a football game, what they discover is that those who are most successful are those who have a game plan. They, they, they highlight that there has never been a Super Bowl winning team that did not go in with a game plan. Uh, sometimes you'll change it. Sometimes when you get there, you have to alter it, but you never go into it without having a game plan. So the question which we're going to ask ourselves today is this. Does God have a plan? Does God have a plan? Right? I mean, if, if successful uh, leaders, <laughs> successful teams, if, they, if, if one of their characteristics is that they have a plan, well, then we would expect that God has a plan. And the Lord knows we need a plan. God needs a plan. This world needs a plan. Uh, I, I'm reminded of this. I've, I've shared this illustration with you before. I think 
A number of years ago, my grandfather was living with me. Now, this is before he passed away. I, it, was, it was wonderful. I got to have about three months when he was living uh, in my house. I was single at the time. And he, it was at a period in my life when I was actually just starting to get to know Laura. And my, my grandfather always said that all I did was work and woo. That was it. Working and wooing. That was my life. Anyway, I, I would go off. I'd be working or wooing, whatever it was. And my grandfather would be at my house. He wasn't mobile. He couldn't get around. He couldn't see very well. And so really, most of the time, he stayed at home, and he listened to the radio. And unfortunately, we could only seem to get one station uh, for him, and he called it the doom and gloom station. And every time I would come home from working or wooing, uh, I'd say, Grandpa, how was your day? What's going on? He's like, oh, and this, this is when I lived in Maryland. He's like, oh, you know, three people got shot in East Baltimore, and, uh, and the mayor looks like he might be having an affair with the treasurer, and, and uh, you know, there was a fire over in West Baltimore. It's just doom and gloom. The reality is, we live in a world that needs a plan. We live in a world where 1.4 billion people live below the poverty line. That's five times the population of the United States. We live in a world where every year a, a, a million children are pulled into exploitative work uh, situations globally. We live in a, in a country where every nine seconds uh, a woman is physically abused. We live in a world where integrity has been replaced as a top priority with the bottom line. We live in a world where, all, where relationships, personal relationships are disintegrating, where marriages are, are struggling. We live, we live in a world where, where people are, are struggling with themselves. That they can't even seem to control themselves, let alone they can't seem to control, control what is around them. So, heaven knows God needs a plan. Does God have a plan? The answer is yes. God has a plan. I made a reference to this earlier in the service. I'm going to read this for you. This is Isaiah, <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25 is a, a passage uh, in which it looks forward. It anticipates this age in which God will renew all things. It, it's an age in which he will make things right, that he has a plan. Just before we get to it, Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. He's a God who has a purpose. He's a God who has a plan. And we find that in Isaiah chapter 25, there is this picture of the end result, this picture of what will happen when, when he accomplishes what he's going to accomplish. And it's, it's undoing this doom and gloom. It's renewing all things. It's making things right. And we get this picture of it. Let me read it for you here. This is Isaiah chapter 25, beginning in verse 6. It says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. It's this picture of, of God making all things right. And, and as I mentioned earlier, you notice it uses this imagery of a feast. That's why we're having this Easter party. Another chance for me to plug it here. It's a foretaste of what is to come. It points us to the reality that God is going to make things right. He's going to make things new. God has a plan. 
What is his plan? Well, if we turn to the passage that was read, our main scripture for this morning, we get a glimpse, we get a glimpse of the initiation of this plan. This is in Genesis chapter 12. Now, Genesis chapter 1 through 11, really actually beginning in chapter 3, 3 through 11, what comes before this, really just chronicles the spiraling decadence of humanity. So Adam and Eve, they turn away from God, then Cain and Abel, and it just, it just spirals uh, into this, well, the sinfulness of humanity. We, we see it sort of at its epitome in the story of, of Noah, the context in which Noah's lived. By the way, uh, Laura and I went and saw the movie Noah, which uh, there's been a lot of controversy about it, uh, about that story. And, and here's, here's sort of my take on the movie. Uh, here's what I would say. It, college students, if you uh, have a test coming up on Genesis and you know you're going to have questions about Noah, uh, don't say to yourself, Ow! I don't have to read it. I can just watch the movie. Right? You guys remember this when you were in college? You're like, I have a test on this book. You're like, I don't want to read it. I'll just go watch it. It never works. Never works out. It doesn't work out with the movie either. Okay? If you watch the movie, there's a lot of stuff that's made up. Okay? But here, here I'm going to say this. I didn't think it was as bad as a lot of people. I think it was. The reality is that when you make a movie like that, they're, they're going to make stuff up. That, that's just to, to fill in and flesh out a movie. There are ways in which they're going to make it up. I thought some of it was actually kind of interesting the way they did it. Uh, actually, it seems that they referenced some extra biblical sources uh, from first century Judaism, some traditions that had been roaming around in that time. It seems like they actually maybe even referenced uh, one of the sources that some scholars think Peter refers to in First Peter. Uh, so they kind of kind of used some of this extra biblical stuff and other stuff they just kind of just kind of made up. So yeah, I mean it's it's. You're going to get led astray if you, if you think that this is exactly how it happened, for sure. So, so if you have a test, you know, read, read your Bible. I didn't think it was that bad. I thought some aspects of it were rather creative. Uh, as my brother-in-law said, it was sort of a combination, uh, a combination of the Bible, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, uh, and Transformers. <laughs> right? They're like these, these rock creatures that were like Transformers. And uh, look, here's the truth. We... We really don't know. I mean, maybe the Transformers were present during the days of Noah. I, I, I don't know. The Bible is strangely silent on this particular point. So, anyway, okay, so that, that was Noah. I, I, it was, uh, I don't know if you guys heard this. In the United Kingdom, there was a movie theater that was showing Noah. I don't know if you heard about this. And they had to cancel their showing because the theater flooded. Did you guys hear about this? I know. I'm, look, I'm a skeptic. That's totally set up. They, it was like an ice machine it went crazy. I don't buy it. I'll bet the place was packed when they finally reopened. Anyway, that, okay, story Noah. But here's actually one thing that the movie did relatively well, because Hollywood is good at this. Uh, it showed the sinfulness of humanity. Hollywood's good at that. This, this is not a movie that you take your kids to. Uh, the version that you find there, it's not like the version that I find in the Bible for my one-year-old. The Bible for my one-year-old kind of skirts over it. But, but biblically, it's right. It, it's, it, it highlights the sinfulness of humanity. And that's what we discover coming into Genesis chapter 12, is that God needs a plan to undo this. And this is what we find in Genesis chapter 12. What does God do in Genesis chapter 12? He calls out a people. He calls out a people. This is his plan. Listen to what it says here calls out Abraham and says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great 
and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He's saying, I will protect you. I will protect you so that all nations can be blessed through you. And we find this repeated over and over in the book of Genesis. I won't mention every single one or we'd be here for a while, but I'll just, I'll just mention a, a couple of times in the book of Genesis where it repeats this. Uh, for example, Genesis chapter 18. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Again, in Genesis chapter 28. The descendants of you will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and through your offspring. We see this, this plan that God has called out a people to bring blessing and renewal into this world. We see it in, in Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, who prophesied uh, oh, well over a thousand years after the time of Abraham. And, and listen to what Jeremiah says. This is, uh, this is the Lord speaking through Jeremiah, it says, If you will return, O Israel, return to me, declares the Lord, if you will put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in a truthful, just, and righteous way you swear, as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will be blessed by him, and in him they will glory. So we see this all throughout. That the story of the people of Israel is this idea that they were called to be the means through which God blesses the nations. But we already see here in Jeremiah chapter 4 that there's a problem. What we find here in Jeremiah chapter 4 is the problem is that it's not just everybody else that has fallen into doom and gloom. That the very people whom God had called out to bring renewal into this world, that they themselves have fallen into the same darkness. They themselves have fallen into the same idolatry. Paul emphasizes this in Romans chapter 2, speaking to, to the people of God. He says, look, you're not really any different than everybody else. You, you cover it up with your religiosity, but you're really not any different. So, so, so we have this, this problem. Okay. This is where we get to the gospel. The gospel is the plan within the plan. It's a plan within a plan. What God said is he looks at his people, he says, okay, you're not, you're not able to do this. You're not doing this. Your hearts are not with me. So God in the person of Jesus comes to this earth. Jesus lives the life that we couldn't live on our own. He lives the life that we weren't able to live. And then through his death and his resurrection, then as we profess faith in him, and as we are united with him as his spirit I'm packing a lot of theology in here really densely here. We can unpack a lot of this, which we don't have time to, but when we profess faith in Christ, then the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead becomes available in our lives to begin to bring renewal in our lives. And so, so well, it's kind of like this. Before you can clean the house, you've got to fix the vacuum cleaner. Jesus came to fix the vacuum cleaner. He came to renew his people. He came to, to work within us that when we when we call upon him, when we rely upon him, then the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead begins to work in our lives, and we can begin to bring renewal. And we find this throughout the New Testament. We, we, we see this uh, kind of starting in motion in, in the Gospels. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he, he sends his disciples out. 
sort of as a prototype, sort of as a pilot episode of what's going to happen down the road. He sends them out and he tells them, he says, preach the kingdom of God and heal the sick. And we see this holistic picture of them going out and bring renewal where there are hurting people. And, and this anticipates then, of course, in Acts, uh, uh, in Acts chapter 1, uh, Jesus saying to, to his people, he, he says, go to Jerusalem and wait and the power of spirit will come on you. Uh, the very spirit that raised me from the grave will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Matthew, at the end of Matthew, we, we find Jesus saying to the disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There's a plan within a plan that, that, that God has come in the person of Jesus to renew his people and to, to send them out. So returning then to the question we raised at the beginning of this message, and that is, what is God's plan to bring renewal? We are. What is God's plan to bring renewal? You are. You are the plan. Renewed by the power of God working in our lives. You are the plan to bring renewal into this world. Today we are finishing up our series on the vision of the church. We're calling it Stoke the Fire. And again, the idea here is that vision is like a fire that if you don't keep putting logs into it, it'll start to die down. So every once in a while, we've got to come back and refocus on it and, and try to put a few more logs in there to stoke the fire. And we've been looking at our, our vision statement. If we can bring this up, it's the vision statement of the church to create a community of passionate followers of Jesus through gospel-centered worship, connection, and service, that we may renew all things with his love and for his glory. And we're looking at this middle section, uh, followers of Jesus through gospel-centered worship, connection, and service, these three pillars. Uh, this, this is sort of how we, uh, this is how we, these are the pillars on which we build everything that we do in this church to carry out this mission. And we spent the last three weeks looking at, at these different dimensions. Three weeks ago, we looked at worship. We saw the importance of us gathering together here to worship because it helps to refocus our minds, right? That what we do in here sets the tone for how we live out there and that when we don't gather together in worship, when we start to not come, then our lives start to get sloppy. We start to not begin, we stop uh, losing focus of the fact that our lives are an offering to Him, uh, right? So we've got to gather together to, to refocus. Then we talked about community last week. We saw the importance of community and, and how particularly in America uh, there is a hunger for community which people don't even realize because they're so distracted. And of course, community is at the very heart of the image of God. That's why we crave it. It's because we were created in the image of God. This is what we talked about last week. And now we're looking at this idea of serving. Of serving that we're called to, to serve. And in a sense, this is I would say, ultimately, the most important message because this is, well, this is what we're called to do. Well, this, is, this is how we're going to bring renewal into this world is through service. And today is Palm Sunday, and this is a great, a great time for this message because Palm Sunday, again, it, it, it refers to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And he comes in, and they celebrate him as Messiah. They celebrate him as a king. He comes in as the triumphant king. 
And that sort of thing was common, actually, in that age, in the Roman age, when a, a king would come in and, and people would line up on the streets and they would praise, praise this king who had come in. But the difference was that more often than not, when that king came in, he would come in on a white stallion. He'd come in on a horse as a victorious military general. It says in Matthew that Jesus came in, Jesus came in on a donkey. It was a sign of humility. And sets the stage for what this kingdom is all about, that the way in which this king reigns is not through lording it over others, but through service. The way he reigns over the nations is through serving the nations. And so we, as his agents of renewal, we're called, we're called to serve. What is God's plan to bring renewal into this world? You are the plan. Another way of saying this is that becoming a Christian is about more than just getting in the boat with Jesus. Let me just read to you from Mark chapter, Mark chapter uh, 5. Mark chapter 5, and Jesus encounters this man, this demon-possessed man, and he heals him. He drives the demon out of this man. And, and listen to what it says in verse 15 of this man. The, the people come to see what has happened. It says, when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. Now, uh, whatever, however you may feel, whatever your sensitivities are about demon possession, uh, whether you're the kind of person who sees a demon behind every flat tire, or you're the kind of person who sees the work of, of evil and the spiritual forces working at perhaps more of a general level, whatever. I'm not going to go into that kind of issue right here. But the one thing which we can all agree upon is that when Christ delivers us from darkness, when Christ draws us into the kingdom of God, what happens is a clarity of mind. It clears your thinking. This is what happens. It comes. They, they see him dressed in his right mind. This was a man who, who didn't have control over himself. He, he, he didn't have control over his own faculties. He, he couldn't see clearly. He couldn't think clearly. He couldn't act properly. And when Jesus comes and the power of kingdom comes into, this, comes into this man's life, now he's able to think clearly. He's able to perceive clearly. So we see that that's at the heart of what it means to become a Christian, but, but that's not all. Verse 18 says, As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him begged to go with him. And Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. You see what's going on here? I think that sometimes when, when we become a Christian, we think it's just about getting in the boat with Jesus. I just want to get in the boat with Jesus, right? So I just... You know what? Uh, I just want to be in worship. I just want to come and worship God, and, and I want to get involved in Bible studies and community group and all that kind of thing. I just, I just want to get in the boat with Jesus. Now, I'm not knocking community groups, Bible studies, or worship. I just talked about that the last couple of weeks. We're getting ready to launch our community groups, and I hope that you'll, you'll look to get, to get involved in that, to get in the boat, and, and, and to be in the presence of God working with the community of God. But, but we've got to see that, that that's... that's our ultimate purpose is not to just get in the boat, but to go out. We weren't just saved from something, we're saved for something. Now, what is God's plan to bring renewal in this world? You are the plan, I am the plan, we are the plan. Another way of saying this is that becoming a Christian isn't simply about conversion. 
It's about calling. We think of becoming a Christian as being converted or whatever. It's, it's about more than conversion. It's about calling. And when we think of the most famous story in the Bible of conversion, we think of the Apostle Paul. And of course, there's this incredible story about how Paul, who was called Saul at that time, he was going out and he was persecuting Christians. He was going out trying to get them arrested and thrown in prison. He was completely uh, against the, the uh, Christ and against the way of the people of God. And, and, and Jesus comes in blinding light, knocks him off of his feet, and, and we see this dramatic conversion experience in which he turns to Jesus, right? But, but in that passage, it's interesting, because what it says is that before Jesus pulls the scales off of, of Paul's eyes, Jesus says that this man, I have chosen him to reach out and be an apostle to the Gentiles. We see that even Paul's conversion was really about calling. What it means to be a Christian is not just a matter of conversion. It's about, it's about calling. And so one of the things that my hope is for each and every one of us in this coming year is that we can begin to seek out what is God's calling in my life? What is God calling me to? What, what is God calling me to? That, that calling can, uh, can change from time to time, from season to season. It's not always the same. God calls you here. God calls you there. Your calling can change depending on the needs of the community, the needs of those around you. Uh, uh, be honest, I, I, I'm hoping that some of you might feel called to children's ministry. Uh, we are in a, in a season where our church is growing. We have uh, families with children coming, and we could really use some help in that area uh, to help reach out and to minister to the children and even to the families. And, and that's something, whether you've been here for years or even if you're new, we would love for you to consider, is God calling you for maybe just for this season to be involved in that? Maybe God's calling you to be involved in the community group ministry, to lead a community group or to host a community group, uh, whatever it may be. Maybe God's calling you to work with the service outreach team or the missions team to help us in figuring out how we can reach out into our community locally and globally. What are the things that we can do to bring renewal into this world? Right? My, my prayer is that each and any one of us would begin to sense, what is God's calling in my life at this time? And it may be different for each and every one of us. God will call us to a different thing. However, there is one aspect of God's calling and this is going to be very specific, which he's calling each and every one of us to. God is calling each and every one of us to make disciples. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. This is a calling of all of us, is to disciple someone else, to make disciples. Now, when I say that word disciple, my guess is in discipleship, my guess is that there are kind of two reactions to that word. One is, if you did not grow up in the church, you're probably like, what is he talking about? What, what, disciple, discipleship? It's not a word, at least in my experience, that is used that much outside of the church. It's kind of a churchy word. So if you, uh, if you didn't grow up in the church, you're probably just confused. If you did grow up in the church and you hear the word disciple or discipleship, you're probably intimidated. You're probably thinking, oh my gosh, discipleship, that, that involves you know, some sort of really rigorous program. Some very, you know, this is for the super Christians. They're the ones that get discipled and disciple other people. That, you know, that's, you know, you got to, you know, I don't know about, that's intimidating. Well, let me just kind of, let me just kind of uh, pull aside, uh, try to bring some clarity to this, try to pull the cloud away from this idea, the mystery of discipleship. And let me just summarize it very succinctly for you. Here's what it means to disciple somebody. 
It means to intentionally spend time with someone in order to expose them to the love of Christ. That's what it means to disciple someone. To intentionally spend time with someone in order to expose them to the love of Christ. Discipleship, the process of discipleship, can sort of happen informally and even unintentionally, but, but to be active, it, to it, disciple someone requires intentionality. To say I'm a discipler means I'm intentional about spending time with someone in order to expose them to the love of Christ. And I want to highlight three dimensions to what I think that that looks like. First of all, to disciple somebody means it involves, well, here are the three parts. It's about relationship, it's about service, and it's about conversation. It's about relationship, it's about service, and it's about conversation. First of all, to disciple somebody is about relationship. At the very heart of discipleship is simply getting into a relationship with someone. It's about spending time with them. It's about getting to know them, and it's also about getting them to know you. That's an important part. It's about letting them see your life, seeing what it's like. Now, here's, here's the thing. Now, I know as soon as I say that, some of you are like, well, that's why I can't do it, right? I can't disciple it because I wouldn't, if they see what's going on in my life, man, they are not going to want to follow Jesus. I know that's what some of us are thinking. But here's what we've got to remember, that at the very heart of the gospel and at the very heart of gospel-centered discipleship is humility. It's not that you have to cover up what you're like in order to disciple someone. In fact, I would say that one of the most powerful aspects of discipleship is somebody seeing you ask for forgiveness. It's seeing you ask for forgiveness. Maybe you've done something to them you need to ask for forgiveness. Or maybe you share with them how you had to ask for forgiveness of somebody else because of what you did. You know, you, you come to say, boy, I've got to tell you something. I, I had a huge fight with my wife, and I was in the wrong, and I had to ask her for forgiveness. That's a powerful dimension of discipleship. It, it's about humility. It's about letting them see what's going on. It's about them seeing that you do grieve over your sin. But you don't just say, oh, you don't care. No, you, you care about it. You, you want to change that you're coming to the Lord. You're asking for him to work in you. But it's that humility, them seeing that. That's a powerful aspect of discipleship. So it's about relationship. It's about letting them see who you are, seeing who they are. And then secondly, it's about service. It's about serving them. As we've already seen, Jesus comes riding in on a donkey. This is how he leads. This is how he disciples. He, he, he is a God who comes in humility and and serves. And so you seek to serve that person. There are a lot of ways in which you can serve. I'd say one of the primary ways in which you can serve somebody in a discipleship context is just listening to them. Just listening to them. We, we think of discipleship, we think of, well, I've got to be able to teach all of these things. And, right, well, first of all, it's really about listening. It's about seeing wh- where, where are they coming from? What's going on in their life? It's showing concern for what's going on in their life. It's saying, oh, I'll pray for you. What, what's going on? How can I It's about serving them. It's about looking for ways to care for them. Relationship and service. You see, all of you can do this. There's nobody here who can't can't do it. You can all do this. The third aspect of it is conversation. Specifically, it is about engaging them in spiritual conversations. And here's the thing. If you do the first two parts of this, the third part can begin to come much more naturally. That, that, That as you get to know one another and as life becomes 
a present and you begin to see what's going on in their life, then you begin to see those times and those seasons when you can begin to raise spiritual conversations. You still have to be bold. There's no getting around it. You, there's got to be a boldness to this. But you can look for those times and those opportunities to raise spiritual conversations and to move it in the direction of getting them to understand who, who Jesus is. So these are three dimensions of what it means to disciple somebody, to be intentional about exposing them to the love of Christ, about relationship, service, and then it's uh, about conversation. Now, there are two principles that I think emerge from this which are important. Uh, first of all, uh, a first principle that emerges from this understanding of discipleship is that preaching the gospel is not about a formula. It's not about a formula. It's not about, uh, now, now I've got this, now I pray, proclaim the gospel. And it's this, sometimes I think the gospel has become like this secret handshake in the church. Like, you say this, and then they pray this, and then now we know that you're going to heaven. It's like, it's all about, well, if you pray this formula, then now when you die, you're going to go to heaven. Let me, let me tell you something, honestly. Uh, the gospel in, in the scriptures is not primarily about going to heaven when you die. It's not. I mean, Jesus really actually doesn't talk about that that much. Really, the gospel is about proclaiming the availability of the kingdom of God now. It's about the reality that you can know Jesus now, that he can work in your life, he can change you. Of course, of course, this leads to eternal life, but that's the focus. We've kind of turned it into this whole, you pray the prayer, now we know that you're going to heaven when you die, this whole formula thing. That's not biblical at all. The the, the gospel isn't a formula. It's it's about showing them how the gospel uh, pertains to where they are. As you get into a relationship with someone, you begin to see how, how it intersects various aspects of their life. Just this past week, I had the opportunity to share the gospel with someone. I did, and, and here's really how it happened. It happened very naturally. I was talking with this person. They came to me. They had some concerns in their life, some concerns with how they were living. Uh, they, it was clear that this individual uh, really felt terrible about themselves and about their behaviors, and they wanted to say, how can I change my behavior? And there just came this moment when I just stopped, and I just looked at him, and I said, let me ask you something. I said, do you realize how much God loves you? I said, do you realize how much God loves you? And this person froze. And then tears just started to come down this person's face. I said, have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard it like that? This person said, no, never like that. I said, no, do you realize how much God loves you? This is what Jesus came to do. That's sharing the gospel. It just, it just it came out of the conversation. You see, it's, it's not a formula. It's about a, a applying it to, to where the person is. Second principle, which emerges from this rather naturally there, is that this kind of discipleship blurs the lines between evangelism and discipleship. It blurs the lines. You see, some of you are even thinking, well, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about evangelism or are we talking about discipleship? But when you come to understand biblical discipleship, you begin to see that it blurs the lines. And part of the reason for this, well, actually, the central reason for this is this, because Christians and non-Christians need the same thing. This is at the heart of what it means to be a gospel-centered church. Is that we realize that the gospel isn't just like, well, it's 101, and then the mature Christians go on to 201, 301, 401. The gospel is 101, 201, 301, and 401. Over and over again, as as I go through my ministry and even look at my own life, I discover that I, the pastor, I need the same thing that non-Christians need. I really do, because I struggle with the same things. 
pride, uh, insecurity, uh, anger, uh, you know, fear, worry. It, it's, it's all the same issues. When you understand the gospel in this context, you realize it's the same thing. Now, I, I, I'll tell you this, that, that I've grown a lot in these areas. I shudder to think what I would be like if I had not come to know Christ. Be a very different person, for sure. But it's still the same kinds of things. So it, 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 it blurs the lines between evangelism and discipleship. You see, every single one of us can do this. It's about intentionally spending time with someone in order to expose them to the love of Christ through relationship, through service, and then through conversation. So I, I want to encourage us to, to think about these two things here. For us to be praying, what is God calling me to in this season of my life in terms of ministry? What specifically? Might it be a particular ministry in the church? Uh, maybe it's, it's, you know, whatever it is, these things that I've outlined for you. Maybe there's some ministry that ultimately you're going to expose to our church. You're going to show us this is a direction that I, that I think that we could go. This is a way in which we could bring renewal into this world. Right? That we seek out, each and every one of us, what this calling is. So that's the first thing that I would ask you to pray about. And then secondly, I would ask you to pray about who are you going to disciple? That each and every one of us would pick at least one person, maybe two people, maybe more, depending on your, your time, your whatever, that you're going to say, I'm going to intentionally disciple this person. It could be anybody, remember this. It could be a Christian, it could be a non-Christian, because it's just somebody where you're saying, I'm going to be intentional about spending time with that person in order to expose them to the love of Christ. It might be in more of a formal setting. One of the things that we have on this, this community group uh, uh, forum here is, would you be interested in being mentored? I use the word mentor because it's less churchy. I really just mean disciple. Shh, don't tell anybody. That's really what I mean, but like I said, disciple is kind of a, a churchy word. It could be more formal. There could be mutual intentionality. Right? That's a formal discipleship relationship when there's mutual intentionality that you are intentionally discipling this person and this person is coming to you and saying, you know, I would like to be discipled. I would like to see you pour into my life. That, that's one way, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. You can also look to, to, to a coworker or a friend or whatever and to say, this is the person who I am going to intentionally expose uh, the love of Christ to. And these are the things that I want to encourage us to pray about. Now, as we come to a close, I'm going to leave you with an illustration. It's an illustration which some of you have seen before. Because one of the things uh, that we find in Genesis chapter 12 is that when God calls Abraham out, calls him out and, and calls a people through him, verse 1, it says, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. He's saying to Abraham, I am calling you out and you're going to have to leave everything. You've got to leave everything. We find this principle here, uh, not necessarily that God's calling you to leave this area. I actually hope you don't leave this area. I hope you stay here. But the principle here is that God is my priority, that I give everything to him. That that's what it means to be a Christian. I'm not just call, uh, converted, I'm called. This is what it is. So I surrender everything to him. Jesus says in Luke 14, 33, any of you who does not give up everything that he has cannot be my disciple. The great commandment says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Saying, we're called to love God with everything. And this is where I'm going to use this illustration, which some of you have seen before. You go, to this, uh, go to the next slide here. Actually, yeah, here we go. Uh, a couple of, of years ago, it's been more than that now, I was at a financial seminar. And they were helping us to figure out how do you do your finances and all of this kind of thing. You, some of you have seen this before. 
And one of the things that they looked at is how do you dis- discover what is your discretionary money? In other words, when you're doing your budget, uh, discretionary money is that money that you have left over at the end of the month, which you can spend on anything. You can spend on cotton candy. Uh, you can spend it on those stupid little machines with the claws in the grocery store that, that go down and pick things up, right? You just blow it on whatever you want, right? Uh, that's your discretionary money. How do you figure out how much you have to spend each month? And what you do is you take your income. Well, I hope I remember all these things. You take your income. I think that's minus your gas, something like that. Minus your savings. Minus your irregular expenses. Minus your regular monthly bills. Right? So these are all the different ways in which you're going to need to budget your money. And then whatever is left over, that's your discretionary money. Oh, I bet, yeah, save. Okay, right. Whatever's left over, that's your discretionary money. That's the money you could spend on whatever you want. So what I thought what we'd do is we would take the great commandment, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and we'd put it in the form of a formula. This is for you engineer math types. Right? So we're going to, here we go. Here's what it looks like. The next slide. We're going to discover what is your discretionary you. What is that part of your life which you can say, God, you have nothing to do with this. This is mine. Leave me alone. Right? Well, we're going to figure out what's your discretionary you. Uh, so it's you minus your love for God equals your discretionary you. Right? So now we just got to plug in the values. You all remember this? Plugging in the values. Here we go. Next slide. So you, what are you? Okay, you are your heart plus your soul plus your mind plus your strength. That's you. Okay, now what is your love for God? Let's see what that is. Love for God. Okay, love for God is your heart plus your soul plus your mind plus your strength. So let's put it together with our formula. Okay, go to the next. Here we go. Your heart plus your soul plus your mind plus your strength minus your heart plus your soul plus your mind plus your strength equals zero. Go to the next slide. Your discretionary you is nothing. God calls us to surrender everything to him. Why? Why is he asking you to surrender everything to him? Because you are the plan. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we praise you that you are a God who has not left us here without hope. Lord, as we celebrate this Easter, Lord, I pray that we would see it as a foretaste of the things that are to come, that you have conquered death, you have conquered sin, and we have victory over that, Lord, and now you have called us. We have a job to do, renewed by your Spirit, renewed by the power of your grace, as we go out in humility, Lord, to bring renewal into this world. Lord, I pray for this church. I pray for revival in this church, and I pray that at the heart of it would be individuals, communities, an entire church that has surrendered ourselves to you and to your purposes and to your calling. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.